from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Glenn Whitman is a history teacher at St. Andrew's Episcopal School, where he also directs the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning. He is the co-author of NeuroTeach, Brain Science in the Future of Education, and the co-designer of NeuroTeach Global. Glenn, can you start off by talking to the listeners about how you got into education? Why is this something you decided you want to spend your life working on? Uh, great, uh, small question, Garrett, to start with. Thank you. Uh, well, to be honest, like I, I was not on the uh, teaching school leadership trajectory at all. Um, I grew up outside New York City. Um, family, no teachers in the family. Um, I was probably thinking accounting, law, law lawyering. Um, and then I, I, I did my undergraduate work at Dickinson College where I uh, fell in love with history, um, mostly because the head of the history department was uh, also my varsity soccer coach at Dickinson. So uh, I was sort of required to maybe take a little history. Um, and then I had a, a colleague, a friend come back during my junior year and say, Glenn, you know, you love history. You love soccer, which is what I played for four years at Dickinson. You know, maybe, you know, what about education? Um, and, you know, his name was Pete Gilbert, and I remember very clearly where I was standing, and I was like, maybe that's maybe that's my trajectory. So uh, um, after I graduated Dickinson, I applied to every uh, independent school I could think of west of Mississippi. Um, and early August, I got lucky. I, I landed a job in Spokane, Washington. Uh, they needed a varsity soccer coach. They needed an AP history teacher. And, you know, boom, uh, you know, two weeks later, I'm starting my history teaching career, only thinking, though, it was short term. I really thought, you know, I, I got to follow the sort of the family business a little. Um, and I'm glad I pivoted um, and have stayed in it now. I've been in education for 28 years, been in three different schools. Um, I cannot think of a more fulfilling obligate job, uh, more challenging. Um, but but no greater opportunity to shape the life trajectory of students um, through the work I get to do with them um, as a teacher, a coach, and now directing the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrews. Let's dive into that. So what is the work that you do um, at St. Andrews? Yeah, so, you know, like most teachers, I, you know, I, I, I love my content. I really focused in on being the best history teacher I could. Um, but like most teachers around the world, uh, I never really was trained or understood the science behind teaching and learning. So I, uh, a little lucky, uh, in 2007, our school uh, made a, a pretty bold decision after doing some internal research um, around the question, um, what's the next frontier to make good teachers great and great teachers expert? Now, I love that question, and I would suggest every school school district should be asking themselves that question. And the exercise turned up, you can imagine, like 20, 23 different answers. Project-based learning, tech integration, you know, better social and emotional learning focus, uh, uh, you name it, uh, competency-based education. We had a throwaway question in, in, the, in the initial survey was, uh, have you ever taken a course on the, on the learning brain, read a book, got a degree? And roughly 20% in a self-reported survey, so maybe some were lying because they thought their boss would see the survey, um, said, yeah. So we thought, who this is interesting, right? 
The organ of learning is the brain. It will come with every kid to every school around the world every day, no matter what. That's indisputable. Shouldn't we sort of know more about it? So uh, I was fortunate, really, to be at a school that got out in front of saying, we're going to train all our teachers in educational neuroscience, which was it, it was called back then. Um, and we, as that grew, and interest and demand started to grow, we, we got connected with Teach for America in the Washington, D.C. region. Other public schools and independent schools started to reach out and they said, hey, do you guys got any workshops, books that we can lean on and look at? And we're like, no, we got nothing for you. But it did give us an inspiration that maybe we need to uh, create a center to support the ongoing professional learning of our faculty at St. Andrews. We're a preschool through 12th grade school just outside of Washington and teachers around the world. So, you know, we are just 10 years old, the Center for Transforming Teaching and Learning. Uh, we are teacher-led, school-based, um, and we are really trying to make teacher-friendly, next-day applicable resources um, in that delivers the most promising research and strategies in the science of teaching and learning uh, to educators around the world. And it's been exciting work. Literally, uh, yesterday we finished up our two-week summer academy and we had 400 public and private school teachers and school leaders uh, from 24 states and six countries um, participate in it. So there is a yearning for what's good research and promising research as opposed to the neuromarketing and the neurojunk that's out there. And we seem to be that bridge or filling that gap between the university researchers who are doing great work and the everyday classroom teacher. And I'll say right off the bat, uh, I am an exponentially better teacher today um, with my students than I was when I first started in 1991 because I think about the organ of learning that comes with them to my class every day. I think about their emotions and cognition together. I think about their identity and, and identity validation and identity threat and how that impacts learning. So um, that seems to be our sort of mission as a center and I get to direct it with an awesome team um, of, of educators who all still teach and that's really an important element of our center. That's wonderful, wonderful work. That's also my my personal passion, how I came to the world of education, because I got deeply interested in this this learning science, how does my brain work? And it was absurd how all the things that I was learning about, how this organ of learning, like you said, how um, all the things my brain was learning about itself was so misaligned with my lived experience in my own educational uh, system. So that was also my intro to, um, to the education world. So I deeply appreciate the work you're doing. I'll, I'll ask a dumb question though, or I shouldn't say dumb question. There are no dumb questions we tell our students. Well, now um, I have to, I'm a teacher. There's no dumb questions. Right, he has to say. He has to say. I want it to go on the recording. I want it to be accountable. <laughs> right. So I'll ask the um, uh, you know, perhaps misinformed question. I'm trying to think of a better reframing. I'll ask go the misinformed. Don't be gentle on yourself, Garrett. <laughs> um, what what are teachers that many of them go through years of training or at least years of professional development if they've been in the system for long what are they learning if not about the this organ of learning like what goes on in these teacher programs were they were these misconceptions such as the importance of multiple modalities or learning styles um or you know left brain right brain why is this still so common if they're going through these these years of professional development or teacher training yeah you know, you know that, i'll tell you I, great question uh i would love to know that better my 
itself, I think I read there's like over 2,000 different schools of education in the United States. And, and as you know, as a nation, we don't have standardized curriculum, um, you know, which again, uh, on some level, I wish we could get to both in terms of content knowledge that all kids should have, because we know content is really important, especially uh, in reading and writing and, and, and obviously thinking, uh, and pedagogical knowledge. Um, look, um, I think, uh, I, I, my, my answer to that question is it's a little territorial um, that, you know, um, and my, my hope is, as I watch groups like Deans for Impact, so I don't know if you know their group, they're out in Austin, Texas, led by Ben Riley, an amazing team. They're really trying to do for pre-service and schools of education uh, what we're trying to do for preschool through 12. And they're, they're great friends and we share a lot. Um, because, you know, you got to ask deans of schools of ed of why isn't, um, you know, cognitive science, right, um, elevated to the level of behavioral psychology and educational theory. Uh, now, I will say this, some schools are really starting to look at this um, and, and intertwine the educational neuroscience um, into their into their curriculum, and there's a re- there's a one reason why really for those listeners who might be in the school of ed space, I want to suggest this. And and I, you actually said something that made me think about this. How do we attract, uh, retain, and develop the next generation of teachers, right? And I think one thing that we we're not selling enough um, to future educators. Um, is the science element of teaching and the research element of teaching. Um, now, I don't know if we'll ever be able to close gaps of Silicon Valley and pay pay the level we should, but you know, I think if more people, as you pointed out, are intrigued by the research and the science behind great teaching, I would like to think this, this field becomes more attractive. Um, but I would like to, what we've figured out, um, and we're working with a couple of schools of ed education to figure this out. Is it still comes down to um, what are the teacher friendly next day applicable resources? And we've been really good. The Center for Transformative Teacher Learning has been really good because we are everyday teachers. So I teach, so I know the life of a teacher, right? So we've created resources. We have um, we have a MBE Mind Brain and Education Science uh, Strategies Roadmap for Elementary Teachers. We have a, a Strategies Placemat. Uh, we have in-person training. We have a virtual tool. Uh, we have even a fun deck of card games. Um, and I think these all make this work even more accessible and doable and integratable. I'm not sure if that's a word, but it will be for this podcast. It is in now. You invented of, in, it. In, oh, heck yeah. Thank you. Uh, in schools of ed, um, pre-service. And then there's that whole group that's in the classroom right now. Right, so um, that's another whole group. I, you know, we we want to also think about in terms of how do we scale this work in big school districts, um, you know, which have thousands of teachers, um, and who are working in very complicated and complex uh, systems. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to jump to a later chapter in your book. I believe it's it's titled "Teachers as Researchers." Um, there seems to be a strange sentiment in the education world that it's it's unethical to experiment in the classroom. I'm sure you've heard this before. Teachers go, I can't experiment on my students. That everyone deserves the best form of, of what I have to offer. How do you get, first, have you come across this roadblock? And then how do you get teachers to buy in that they are researchers in the classroom? They should be experimenting with their pedagogy. I would 
would say it actually the, the only barrier is language and semantics. Um, I would say every teacher experiments every day. <laughs> but when we start saying, oh, we're doing an action research project and or we're doing research, you know, these the, there's a mindset shift, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm maybe I'm going to teach a unit on the on the Cold War, right? I haven't I haven't taught the more modern American history in a while, but you know, uh, maybe I'll pull out and maybe I'll experiment with some music. Maybe I'll bring out Billy Joel's "We Didn't Start the Fire," right? Maybe one of the great history teaching um, uh, set of lyrics, right? Haven't used that. I don't know if I've ever used that or used it in a while. Um, that would be an experiment, wouldn't it? Does it work? Does it help to connect kids with um, some of the content? I, and I'm hoping some of your viewers or listeners are old enough and are going through and and reimagining the MTV video from the from the 80s that I remember. Um, but isn't that experimentation? Now, I don't have a control group, right? But I, I don't know if that's what we're after in schools, right? Um, teachers, what we want teachers to do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna co-op some terms from a good friend of ours, Dr. David Daniel, James Madison University. Um, we want teachers to be research-informed or evidence-informed educators. So, what is the most promising research and strategies in the science of teaching and learning that they should be aware of and thinking about in their context with their kids and their school culture? The next step would that be, you know, think about a, a, a problem, a practice, a need, a challenge, or an opportunity. And which of those strategies might uh, help solve that problem? It might be for one student, you know, little Glenny or little Garrett, or it might be for some of the class or whole of the class. Um, who knows? And then the key, though, is you know measure that. And and we're not looking for empirical journal publishing measurements. You know, did it work for Glenn and Garrett? Did it work for everybody? Did it not work? Or do we even get no results? Right, that's research. Now I know, again, we ran into this. Teachers like, well, if I do a control group and I try something with this group and this group doesn't get it, well, I, I would argue most parents want great teachers for their kids. And I think if, if, if teachers and principals and superintendents say, look, you know, we're trying this strategy, we need to test it. If it works, everybody's gonna get it. Um, but there's really, you know, you know, we have to we have to see if it works in our context and our kids. And we're, it's not like we're doing brain lobotomies I and mean, we're not cutting anything, right? We're 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 you know, we we might, we might use space practice a little better, right? And maybe one group is coached heavily on what space practice is, and maybe one group isn't. Now they're still studying; they're still using their strategies, probably flashcards, and maybe using them incorrectly. So. Um, I would like to walk teachers back just a little from the from the fear, right? Um, and also walk teachers forward to embrace being researchers and to acknowledge you actually are co collecting observational data and responding to it 10, 20, 30, 40 times a day, right? You're already researchers, whether you know it or not. But don't feel like you need to be journal publishing empirical researchers that's not the ultimate goal we have we have we have university professors and researchers who would want to work with us to do that if we want to get to that level so hopefully that calms the audience um, but it should say this is a dynamic field you know medicine you know science they have a research base to go forward that is not part of the culture of education I would think 
the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning is one important organization out there, um, little unique because we're based in an everyday school that's trying to change that culture. And here's where I'll even say one other thing. Um, we are encouraged. There's a new role in schools that we want to encourage uh, uh, schools and districts to think about, and that's that's sort of like a head of research or a research lead. Now, that it's focused on sort of pedagogy and curriculum, though, right? Um, uh, I know schools look at data and whatnot like that, but if you bring in somebody who's a who knows how to translate and can work with teachers uh, on their translation and designing, you know evidence generating small little doable projects, I think that's a great uh, attractive pathway for a role in schools of some of these people who are coming out of um, neuroscience, educational neuroscience, MBE programs at places like Hopkins and, you know, and, and Stanford and uh, elsewhere in, in the country. I saw in your book, you alluded to the work of Seymour Poppert and that's a powerful, uh, when I first read him, I read him from a pretty young age, actually, and he definitely connected with me, this constructionist uh, way of viewing learning because I was a computer science background. So I, I deeply connected with what he was saying, but his message around researchers who study not just the subject themselves, but how to properly communicate and educate people around the subject, that being a valid field of study, um, sounds similar to what you're saying, but I 100% agreed. Learning how to, you know, the memes that will transmit these ideas and creating effective ones are just as important as the ideas themselves, in my opinion. Yeah. No, no. Well, sir, I'm glad not many people uh, pick up on uh, Dr. Popper's work. Uh, uh, you read it closely. You get you get extra points from your teacher. Um, Thank you. Thank but, you. But you, know, you brought up you brought up something interesting, right? What 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 is missing, but it's getting better, is uh, research teacher partnerships, right? You know, if I'm if I'm in in a, in a university, right? Some of my focus is to to publish and get tenure, um, but I would also like to think that if you're doing research in, on, on, on students um, and teaching and learning, that you want that research to get to the schools to see if it works in their context, right? You know, here's what's interesting. The promising research and, uh, and strategies that we, are, we, we use and they're out there, a lot of them, first of all, are done with high school and college students, right? So will they work for young learners um, or middle school learners? That's one thing. But I, I would like to have a call for or suggest that you know, university researchers really think about you know, continuing to identify schools and teachers to collaborate with and ask the teachers, the everyday teacher who's on the front line, what are their questions, needs, problems? Right, because it's not often the same question, need, or problem that the university uh, uh, teacher or professor um, is focusing on. Right, it's 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 really not connected to the everyday life. So I would argue, thinking about the questions and the problems of practice and the needs and the challenges that we face every day in the classroom, um, and finding a researcher that that's interested in that topic. Like here's an example. Uh, for your audience, we have a free neuroeducation confidence diagnostic. So if you go to our website, the cttl.org, as an individual or as a school or district, you can take this diagnostic. It takes 10 minutes. It's free, and you'll get an automated report. Now, we've generated over 5,000 um, uh, people have taken it. You know, 
sitting there right there is an amazing PhD dissertation, right? Um, and you know, there's a great example of, of rich data that's emanating from the school out as opposed to from the from the academy in. Um, so it's just something to think about. Uh, other thing is language. Sometimes language gets a little daunting um, and uh, oversimplification of language. You know, we're very cautious, and we and we and we share this with all our friends. You know, a lot of what's informing us at St. Andrews or teachers around the world is not neuroscience as a standalone, right? Uh, matter of fact, neuroscience currently offers probably only so much to the everyday work of a teacher. Now, I would argue neuroplasticity has to be known by every educator. Uh, if you don't believe in the lifelong ability of a student's brain to change and rewire uh, through both environment, DNA, right, and really impactful teachers, you're probably not in the right profession. This is why um, we were influenced very early on, Gary, um, by Dr. Kurt Fisher, the late, the late great Dr. Kurt Fisher, in my mind. Um, he really advanced or developed the field called mind-brain education science research. Um, and that's sort of what we call it now. And, uh, you know, and, um, you know, there, there's a lot of great people working in it. Uh, it's all encompassing. But neuroscience fits into that field, behavioral psychology, cognitive science, educational theory. Um, and it's, um, uh, again, I think translating in a common language amongst school systems and teachers um, and even parents too um, is, is, a, is a great challenge and this is where researchers and teachers just got to work even more closely together. That reminded me of an anecdote that my friend um, Brian Tobel, who's the co-founder of Schoolhouse, I hope he doesn't mind me using his anecdotes, but um, he previously worked a ton in curriculum design for different boot camps and for um, professional development resources. He, sound, he said writing good questions and communicating um, questions to students is the hardest skill set he's ever come across. And um, the reason he knows this, the reason that what informed his opinion was because he used to create tons of formative assessments for these organizations. Um, so he would have very granular data to track um, the progression of knowledge and, um, you know, the rate rate of forgetting and these sort of things. And he would find that usually what caused a question or a concept not to stick with someone was the misuse of an acronym, for example. They would ask an acronym and they thought ever, you know what, they thought they learned that acronym in the last class, right? But um, that one failure of communication, uh, you know, using an acronym where the acronym wasn't familiar with the students, went from 90% eventual retention from that chapter to 25%. Right. It's just so difficult. Um, and so this is another bit. You mentioned formative assessments in your book, which is one of my favorite topics, spaced repetition, whatever you want to call it, is one of my favorite topics in education, because how can you know that that's the case, that you lost 75% of your students if we're not taking these often granular um, assessments for, for us to reflect upon? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Garrett, as we, as we return uh, from... Um, more than a year of, of lack lack uh, lack of cohesion in the educational experience because of COVID, right? Um, I think if, if when, when we're asked, you know, how should we begin the new school year, right? Hopefully, you know, students around the country and around the world are going to be on campuses. Yes, they might have masks. Okay, I'm not going to get into the politics of that. I'll let, let people fight that out on another podcast. But I would argue, I would suggest. 
Uh, and I hope your audience emails me. My, my email is gwhitman at saes.org. I will make a call that you should not give a summative assessment in the first month of your school year this year. Now, people are going to like freak out, right? I need points. I need grades. I got how, how am I going to know if a kid's learning? This is where I would argue we really have to leverage, especially this year, the formative assessment. We have to find out where each kid is, um, re-enculturate them to school life in a non-threatening or low-stakes way, right? If you feel like you need, now teachers are going to say, well, my kids, if I, if I give a quote-unquote quiz for no points, they're not going to be motivated. All right. What kids will do for two points is amazing. Give, make it two points, okay, as opposed to 22 points. Um, but formatively, we need to figure out a couple of things. Where is each kid coming back to in each of our discipline subject skills, right? In a non-threatening, low-stakes way. Um, now, if you want, if you, if you say I need a summative assessment, then just make sure you never give a summative assessment before you give a formative assessment. Right, because we do know in the work of Dylan William and all the all the greats out there who really talk about, it, um, you know, doing something with the knowledge of the learning we get from the formative assessment, correcting wrong answers, right? Thinking metacognitively about, you know, why I answered like this or what strategy did I use to prepare, um, and actually being very transparent to students. Say, look, you know, let's give ourselves some time to get back into the flow of school. So I love that you brought up formative assessment. Um, I, you know, again, this is low stake for the audience, low stakes or no stakes, um, trying to figure out where kids, kids are. If you feel like you need that points then just follow my rule or the rule that I will suggest, never give a summative assessment without kids having a chance to practice it with it formatively. Um, and for you also, maybe as a teacher, look, there's moments I've taught things lousy and I've said it. Um, I've come in the next, I said, I blew that one. And here's how I, I gave you a formative assessment and you all missed question seven, right? I have to reteach that question. Also, I will say, and certainly, you know, I know, I know Soar's in this, in this space, uh, formative assessment's really important before we launch kids into projects, right? We, I think we all see the value of project-based learning, experiential learning, right? Um, absolutely. But too often we don't know if if kids are ready for the project, right? Do they have enough content knowledge to hang their creativity, their brainstorming, their 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 entrance in the project? So I uh, I've taken up uh, there's a great book called The Ingredients for Great Teaching from a good friend of ours in Belgium, Pedro de Broca, and he says, look, give a ten question formative assessment before any project you do, and if a kid gets eight to ten right, they're ready for the project. Let them go. If they get sort of six to eight, five to eight, give them a little, maybe they just need a little extra reading, a little flipped classroom moment, just to refresh certain key concepts. But if they get less than five right, they need some real explicit direct instruction reteaching. How many of the audience who, again, I know this audience out there, I bet you is very interested in project-based learning, and you should be. Build that into your flow of a project, I'm telling you, um, it really makes a difference. And I had not started doing that until about two years ago. Um, it has made the project experience much better uh, for the student, for this teacher, and I think it's uh, for the parents as well, but I haven't surveyed them yet. It's an excellent tip. I'll play devil's advocate for a second. What do you say to the teachers out there who say, 
I'm busy enough creating my one multiple choice, you know, test every three chapters and doing the traditional way. I'm busy enough. You expect me to create all these formative assessments, the, you know, these exit tickets, these perhaps if if we're going even a step further, you expect me to give multiple exam options. You expect me to even do exam redos. How the heck am I going to have time to do all these things? Yeah, look, there, there's, there's no greater opportunity or challenge of being a teacher it is a it is a hard job right let's just let's all face it right uh and and look and you're never going to be compensated in the dollar value you deserve okay but i will say this um we ended our book called neuroteach with the 10 percent challenge so for those who just want to skip to the end or, or or have it required to read it and you got to prove you read it just mention the 10 percent challenge and the 10% challenge is what 10% of your class um, can you can you uh, uh, tweak uh, or really change based upon some prom- promising research and strategies that we both present in the book or in the science of teaching and learning field. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Like, uh, um, and I will also suggest that I think one culture we have to change is the teachers working harder than the students, right? If you work, if you are working harder than your students, then that's, we have to change that. Now, what's that mean? Well, think about how, for the, for those who are classroom teachers, whether you're at the university level, pre-K, sixth grade, fifth grade, AP physics, you name it. How do you begin your class? When we get to walk around schools and districts, one of the things that we see is how poorly classes start in most schools, right? It's often attendance, it's administrivia, uh, not very engaging. Well, the, the brain, as it's coming to your class, is looking for novelty. It's looking for something to engage in, right? And this is where you know Doug Lamov's book, Teach Like a Champion, which is really a great resource, and I um, really want to encourage people to look at that. Um, you know, how do you begin your class is something you can adjust. You could take attendance, but could have a stretch problem from the previous night's math homework, right? And the kids are on the board and they're working on it while you're still doing attendance, but the kids, boom, are engaged. How do you end your class? So not only do we want to help teachers think about the science of how to begin a class or end a class, but most teachers still teach to the last second of the class, right? Trying to maximize all the time, giving new information. The students are halfway out the door. They're thinking about who's their prom date, um, you know, right? Um, when you're missing an opportunity for maybe a little retrieval, right? Or recall, you know, what was the key point of my class today? An exit ticket, I think it's called in a number of schools, or a do now, right? And that gives the teacher data. Hey, did I do my job today? Uh, but it also, you know, um, Dan Willingham talks about memory is the residue of thought. I love that quote. I love I that quote. I would like, oh, it's a great quote. No, I mean, if I'm not big into tattoos, but if I got a tattoo, <laughs> that might be one of them. Um, uh, my wife my wife might kill me. My daughter might make fun of me. My son might make fun of me. But um, where do you make your kids think harder than you as the teacher? Um, and why not end every assessment with a question of what strategy did they use to study for this? To make them think a little metacognitively. Do they think it worked? Um, and then they, that's, that's, meta, that's an example of metacognition. There's no teacher in the world who can't answer, add a question to, these, to, the, to this assessment. So I do want to say there's some low-hanging fruit um, out there 
that I would love to be able to help get to you, to anybody who listens um, to this podcast or wants to uh, hang out and just exchange ideas formally or informally, email me. I'm on Twitter. Um, and I'm, if you're ever in the Washington, D.C. area, just swing by and uh, love to talk more because I, I do believe as not only as we come out of the impact of COVID um, on trying to grow students and accelerate learning, but I, I still think out there that um, scaling up um, into teachers, schools, and districts, understanding of the science of teaching and learning is the most promising uh, research and strategies for the future of how we think about schools and how we design schools, um, how we design a daily schedule. Most schools have adjusted their daily schedule last year for health, well-being, and safety. I would argue most should keep that schedule. It's actually a more brain-friendly schedule than the one they had um, prior to March 2020. I know I could talk to you for hours more. There are tons more things I wanted to chat about and bullets I made from going through your great book. Um, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and our listeners today. No, no. Thanks for the opportunity. I, uh, please, anybody who's listening, uh, email Whitman at saes.org. Follow on Twitter. But know if there's any way um, either myself, our team, or the CTTL can be part of you beginning or elevating your understanding of the science of teaching and learning, whether you're a teacher or school leader, parent or student, uh, count us in. Um, it's made me a better teacher and actually uh, a lover of, of, this, of this professional um, experience. So thanks, Garrett. Thanks to your, organ your organization and uh, uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going. Thank you for listening to this episode of SOAR's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.